After a temporary truce is agreed upon between Abner and Joab, Joab uses the opportunity to assassinate his rival, Abner, Saul's war chief, using Asael's killing as an excuse. This is the fifth sermon in the series, Kingdom, Dynasty, and Glory, an exposition on the second book of Samuel. Our old covenant reading coming from 2 Samuel in chapter 3, beginning in verse 22 through the end of the chapter 39, 22 through 39, 2 Samuel chapter 3, beloved of the Lord, this is the word of God unto us this morning. By inspiration of God, the prophet writes, And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he was gone in peace. When Joab and all the host that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he had sent him away, and he is gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away, and he is quite gone? Thou knowest Abner the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy goings out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Sirah, but David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Job took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Asiel, his brother. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there not fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth upon a staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, slew Abner, because he had slain their brother Asiel at Gibeon in the battle. And David said to Joab, and to all the people that were with him, Rend your clothes, and gird you with sackcloth, and mourn before Abner. And King David himself followed the bier. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth. Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put into fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. And all the people wept again over him. When all the people came to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, David swore, saying, So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else, till the sun be down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As whatsoever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a Prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel, and I am this day weak, the anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, be too hard for me. The Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. Luke writes to us in Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 47 and 48, two verses only this morning. With the same spirit, Luke writes, And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude, and he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. 
But Jesus said unto him, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Thus far as the reading of God's most holy and errant and finally authoritative word, the grass withers, the flower thereof fades away, but the word of God stands forever. And by his holy word is the gospel presented unto us again this day. Now as a result of Abner's cunning leadership and valor, Israel and Judah are united under one king, David, the shepherd of Israel. This unification, however, was unique. It was not as it was under the unification of Saul. That unification was quite different, since that union was built upon the structure of tyranny and despotism in spite of Samuel's warning. There were, in fact, because of Saul's tyranny, there were, in fact, two camps, the house of Saul and the house of David. And whenever there is a tyrannical government, there will always be those following the tyrannical government, those who are servants of the tyrannical government, those who are sheep under the tyrannical government, ignorant in the masses, and then there are the righteous. There will always be two camps when there's tyranny. Saul's unification of the tribes was built upon a faithless king and a faithless tribal leadership. However, now, in fulfillment of Samuel's prophecy, David becomes king over the twelve tribes, which had a distinct and God-centered foundation. Now Israel, with all the tribes gathered together, and this is what Abner was trying to bring about, with all the tribes gathered together under the God-fearing king David, they could now be a formidable adversary against any nation that sought to bring them into bondage or to destroy them by violence. And this is because they had one sure foundation, which is, of course, David, but, of course, because David was representing God himself. So all efforts of dominion by this union now, this new unification, would be for the glory of God, not for Samuel, not for Saul, not for Abner, not for Joab, not for any one individual, but this unification and all of the efforts of this unification would be for the glory of God and the dominion of his kingdom, the advancement of his kingdom over all other kingdoms. And they would be able to wage a cosmic war for the majesty of Christ once there was that Christendom unification. And this is to be the model and commission of the church today. Having been united by one king and empowered by one spirit, the church of Jesus Christ is now granted the authority and power to stand against any foe that seeks to enslave her, to molest her, or to destroy her. And this is the one thing that the church of Jesus Christ must understand today that they have been empowered by the Spirit of God. They are not to hide themselves under a bushel. They are not to hide themselves in a pietistic fashion. They are to be like the governors of Judah, a hearth of fire among the wood and like a torch of fire in a sheaf, devouring all of the people by the preaching of the Word of God. That is what the Church of Jesus Christ needs to be. And that is what she is not today. Under David as she is under Christ, the nation of the elect are invincible. As long as Israel remained devoted to their king, as long as the church of Jesus Christ remains devoted to her king, in the service of the Lord, she can now be a terror to the pagan nations who, to be sure, were watching the events unfold between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now, if the house of Saul under Ishbosheth succeeded to rise up, it would have signaled to the Philistines and every other warring nation that the weak king Ishbosheth 
had taken the throne resulting in a plan for war. They understood that Ishbosheth was a weak king. And there's another principle here as well. Whenever a weak, inexperienced, or apostate, faithless, God-forsaking ruler ascends the throne of power, the enemies of every nation become empowered. The enemies of every nation are empowered, and then they are, because of that empowerment, they are then compelled to take advantage of the weakness of that king and the weakness of the nation in which he rules over. And we've seen this throughout our own history with the appeasement of Neville Chamberlain to the Nazis when he has subjected the German-speaking people of Czechoslovakia to Hitler. And in our own country with Jimmy Carter's weakness toward Iran and now with the weakness of today's POTUS with Russia and his dealings with China. This is true of the church today. Whenever the church is filled with the weak and compromised pastors that she has so desired to bring into the pulpit to tickle their ears... She is stripped of her power and the enemies are empowered to take advantage against her. And so when the state says close the churches, the faithless Ishbosheth close the churches. Weak leaders, whether civil or ecclesiastic, always bring about a time of difficulty to the entity in which they rule over. Now far too many of today's church leaders are like those weaklings who are unqualified to rule. It's difficult today to find a pastor in the pulpit who's calling the church to be triumphant, militant and triumphant, to get out there and get into the face of the civil rulers that are raising taxes or to their senators or to their congressmen or even to have the boldness to raise up candidates for local offices, to make a difference, to speak out with power, with one voice. Too many leaders today are like Ishbosheth. Whereas David, on the other hand, saw a lion and a bear attempting to devour his flock. He kills them without so much as a hesitation or a doubt or a fear. He kills them because he cared about the flock of Jesus Christ. Under the Davidic leadership, Israel is now poised to realize their purpose as dominion conquerors for the glory of God and for the advancement of his kingdom. Likewise, under the Christocentric empowered church, The city of God is and has been for some time poised. That is what God has done. He has poised the church. She is now poised to realize her purpose and destiny as dominion conquerors for the glory of God by preaching the gospel, by declaring the law of God, by bringing down imprecatory prayers, by bringing down imprecatory prayers against them. But they can only do this when they are led by faithful ministers and when they are devoted to the cause of the kingdom. Not their kingdom individually, not our individual fiefdoms, but God's kingdom, the universal kingdom. And it takes faithful leadership by men of integrity, obedience, and action to get this job done. Now, even with his drawbacks, even with his drawbacks, David was such a man. But Christ was the man, and Christ is the one empowering the church today by his spirit. Now, Abner had delivered what he had promised to David by convincing the elders of the 12 tribes of Israel to covenant with the house of David, thereby giving up any ties with the house of Saul and the weakness of his son, Ishbosheth. Now, while all this was developing, Joab, 
is occupied in the skirmish, probably with some of the Philistines, and was not privy to the to the dealings that Abner had made with David. We see this in verse 22, And behold, the servants of David and of Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. So he was occupied elsewhere. Abner was in Hebron after making a deal with David. Joab had nothing, no intel here. But once Joab learns of what had transpired between Abner and David. He tries to undermine Abner by telling David that Abner's plan is actually a trap. He is a deceitful character. And that David is not to trust him. Insinuating that Abner's allegiance is really with the house of Saul and not with the house of David. And we've seen this in verse 24 and 25. Then Job came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away and he has gone quite in peace? Why are you letting him go free, in other words? Why are you not detaining him? Why are you treating him as a friend? Thou knowest, Abner the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy goings out and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. In other words, he's a fraud. Now from this argument, we can now begin to understand the mind of Joab. At first glance, we might suspect that Joab still hadn't put away his vengeance, his intentions of of vengeance against Abner even though he originally, initially left off pursuing him after the death of his brother Asael. And once Joab blew the trumpet and suspended the the killing of Abner, it seemed as if that was that. All was well. According to the scriptures, Joab seemed to be satisfied with the situation so that there would be no further bloodshed, that there would be no all-out war against the house of Saul, against the house of David. Joab's words to the king, however, were deceitful at best. He is calling Abner a deceitful man when he, in fact, was deceitful. Even seeking to manipulate the king, since Joab hoped that David would have slain Abner for what he had done to Asael. But this was all a ruse by Joab. So the question is, did he still want vengeance for his brother's death? Is he telling David, kill Abner, or at least imprison him, Does he really care about vengeance for his brother's death? Or was there something more? Something more diabolical? Or at least something in addition to that revenge? Now to be sure, Joab wanted Abner out of the way. Since he was a threat to Joab's position as war chief, the war chief of David's army. It was all about positioning, it was all about posturing, it was all about politics. And that is why it is understandable that when Joab heard of what had transpired between David and Abner, he was was wroth, he was angry. This agreement between Abner and the king was the very opposite of what Joab wanted. First, Abner killed Joab's brother. Then he makes a deal with the king to deliver all of Israel into his hand. He then becomes the captain, or at least this is what Joab perceives, he then becomes the captain of the guard of David's army, displacing Joab. And for a man like Joab, this is just just too much to handle. His little mind was exploding. He didn't want this to happen. Joab wanted the man executed, not exonerated. He wanted him ashamed, not promoted. He wanted him dead, not alive. And so the real question here is, was Joab actually blinded by his hatred and his revenge for his brother, which would make him a very unstable character, or was he something else? Was there something more sinister that moved Joab which adds treachery to his abominable character. 
perhaps both of these emotions, even some additional emotions come into play. Now, now once he heard of the king's dealings with Abner, he decides to take matters into his own hands, not considering, he never did consider the collateral damage that might happen, so not considering the collateral damage it might do to the unity of the nation because he was not interested in unification. He was interested in schism and vengeance. He was not interested in the safety and security of his people. He was interested in whatever he was interested in. So blinded by his thirst for blood and his quest for position in David's army, Joab hatches a devilish plan. In fact, he can kill two birds with one stone. He could avenge his brother and at the same time ensure his position as war chief. So by deception, Joab murders Abner. Verse 26. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Sirah. But David knew it not. David had nothing to do with this. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, notice Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly. Come, I want to discuss some things with you. Let's talk it over. I have something to say to you. And there smites him under the fifth rib that he died for the blood of Asael, his brother. This is exactly what Cain did to Abel. He took him aside to speak with him in order to lull him into his diabolical trap of murder. Genesis 4, 8. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Come, Abel, let's go into the field. Let's chat about this. And it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. But Nehemiah was crafty. When Sembalat and Tobias asked for Nehemiah, when they asked for Nehemiah to come down to talk with them, he knew of their treachery. And he sends a messenger and tells them, I will not come down to you for I am doing good, good work. The key phrase of 2 Samuel 26, verse 26, is David knew it not. Joab takes matters of the kingdom into his own hands with almost devastating results without consulting with the king. And by his deed of wickedness, Joab threatens the entire federation between the house of Saul and the house of David, which could result in years and years of civil war between the tribes. And ultimately, the Philistines, the Amalekites, the Moabites, and every other tribe would recognize the civil war within the nation as we have a civil war in our nation, and they will take advantage of it. The ulterior motive for this act of Joab was self-serving. Perhaps it had little to do with the vengeance to pay blood for blood over the death of Job's brother Asael. But I can tell you this, for the most part, it had everything to do with Job's position as war chief. And we see this within the churches as well as the nation today, among those who want positions of honor, positions of power, and who will do anything to attain it, even if it means destroying the unity of the nation or the unity of Christendom. For power to feather one's nest with little care of the collateral damage Abner had provided to David what Joab never could have he gave the 12 tribes of the northern kingdom to David a peaceful transition Abner wanted unity 
Joab wanted power. Now surely Abner, for this transition of power to David, surely he would be rewarded. This was an honorable thing. This was something that David would like. I want a man like Abner. Joab, he's a loose cannon. We don't know what he's going to do next. But Abner, a cunning man, a skilled man, a man of influence with 12 tribes, this is a man who I could use, David's thinking. And the best placement for such a man would be at the head of David's imperial army and not again. It was too much for Joab to bear. His little head was just exploding thinking about his demotion and Abner's promotion. Adam Clark, the great commentator, says this, Joab feared that after having rendered such essential services to David, Abner would be made captain of the host. He therefore determined to prevent it by murdering the man under pretense of avenging the death of his brother Asael. The murder, however, was one of the most unprovoked and wicked. And such was the power and influence of this nefarious general that the king dared not to bring him to justice for his crime. In the same way, he murdered Amasa. A little afterward, Joab was cold-blooded, a finished murderer, treason and murder, ever kept together like two yoke devils, end quote. Now, Joab was indeed an unstable man. And yet he had an incredible, almost unreasonable power over his cousin David the king. And one would wonder, what is that all about? So once David hears of this, of course, he's beside himself. He understands the ramification of Abner's murder. And afterward, when David heard it, he said, I and my kingdom are guiltless before the Lord forever from the blood of Abner the son of Ner. David understood that if it was perceived that he had anything to do with this, if he had ordered the assassination of Abner, whom the elders of Israel, the twelve tribes, had trusted, there would be war, and that war would last forever. The tribes would never be united. David would never be trusted. He would have been forever looked at as a murderer and a deceiver. And this is why it was so important to place the blame immediately upon the actual murderer, lest there be any doubt as to who the murderer really was. And this is why it's so important to maintain trust. Beloved, trust is the foundation upon which every relationship is based. It is the establishment of reliability whereby relationships are built. Once trust is violated... No matter where it's from, no matter where it is found, once trust is violated, it can almost never be cleansed from that stain. Regaining trust, once it is broken, is one of the most difficult things ever. Sometimes it's even impossible. Whenever there is an ongoing violation of trust, the relationship that had originally been built upon trust is destroyed This is true in any relationship, in relationships of business, politics, families, religions, especially within the marriage relationship. The entire gospel foundation, the entire gospel of Jesus Christ, the entire scripture itself is built upon trust and unwavering confidence that what God promises will come to pass and what he says is truth itself. 
That's what faith is all about, trusting God. By faith we trust God that He has sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins and our hope is built upon that trust and the fact that He will destroy the workers of iniquity in time and in history and bring a full orb, comprehensive kingdom to bear upon the wicked. Our hope is built upon this trust. It is built upon His divine promise from the one who cannot lie. And when we consider the gospel relationship between Christ and His people as a marriage relationship between the bride and her bridegroom, we see how trust plays such an important role in that relationship. And this is why there is permission for the dissolving of the marriage relationship when there is a violation of trust which was proclaimed as an oath during the marriage ceremony. God permits divorce only when that trust relationship is so broken So broken, let me repeat that, so broken, irreconcilable and broken, never be able to be reclaimed or repaired, God permits divorce. Sometimes, however, and I would add wonderfully, sometimes, by the grace of God, when there is a violation of trust within a marriage relationship, by lying or an adulterous relationship, divorce is not necessary. But that all depends on the willingness of the couples and the depth of the violation to seek the face of God for forgiveness and then work toward reestablishing trust. This is possible, but it's only possible by the grace of God. What is better is to never violate that trust. David understood the importance of trust. He understood the importance of maintaining trust. He understood what it meant to swear an oath and what his word meant. And he was willing to stand by it. Joab, on the other hand, had no idea about what trust meant or what it meant to be trustworthy. And so David immediately confesses that it was not himself that initiated this dreadful deed of murder. It was Joab. And yet, and yet, the fact of the matter is, Abner is dead. The fact remains that Someone actually killed him. And David wastes no time in pointing out Joab. He has to quickly identify the killer. But he doesn't only name Joab as the assailant. He openly curses him along with his entire posterity publicly before the people. And this was a serious thing that David did. This was a serious curse It wasn't a light thing to curse not only Joab and his whole posterity. This was a serious curse since it was not only before God and the people. It was by the king himself. David's oath held weight. Notice what he says. Let it rest on the head of Joab and on all his father's house. And let there not fail from the house of Joab one that hath an issue, or that is a leper, or that leaneth on the staff, or that falleth on the sword, or that lacketh bread. Now consider the curses that David issues. Now we must remember that all of these declarations by the king are actually legal judgments against Joab as a divine curse before God, sworn openly in public before God and the people so that they understand the severity of the crime and now the consequences. 
What David is doing is swiftly pronouncing a sentence of doom upon wicked Joab. Note the particulars. Number one, the death of Abner will be forever be upon the head of Joab. Here David places the headship of a murderer upon the head of Joab. He removes any responsibility of wickedness from himself and his people and places it on Joab individually. And this is a transference of identity from righteous David to murderous, bloodthirsty Joab. Secondly, David goes beyond Joab's person and condemns his entire posterity, his family's house, his father's house, in a very specific way, calling on God, asking God. Here is a man after God's own heart. Here's David the king, who knew God, who communed with God, who had the spirit of God, calling upon God, calling down from God upon the head of Joab, plagues, the plague of leprosy, physical infirmities, poverty and violence by the sword. And we should learn a lesson from David. We should be bringing these kinds of curses upon the wicked of our nation, upon the wicked in the church. David understood the validity and the power of a curse. And in this way, not only bringing these curses upon Joab, he hoped to convince Israel that he had nothing to do with the murder of Abner. His prescription for justice is swift. But was that enough? Why wasn't the law of God enforced by the king that very day? That's a question we have to ask. This is a premeditated murderer, a man who deceives a godly man and kills him, This is a question we might have to ask, since whenever a man's blood is shed in a premeditated fashion, man's blood must be shed according to the law of God. If David really wanted to cleanse the land of Abner's innocent blood, Joab should have forfeited his life that very day. And yet he did not. And this, of course, is a haunting question indeed, and may have even contributed to the difficulties David had to bear later on in his reign. David then gives an order of repentance to Joab and to all the people. Verse 31, And David said to Joab and to all the people that were with him, Rend your clothes and gird you with sackcloth and mourn after Abner. And King David himself followed the bier. Now following the cast, David is in a lamentable state. And they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and went at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king lamented over Abner and said, Died Abner as a fool dieth? In other words, he didn't die as a fool died. He was a, he was a good man. He was a righteous man. Thy hands were not bound, nor thy feet put in fetters. As a man falleth before wicked men, so fellest thou. You were betrayed. And the people understanding the severity of this crime, and it was a crime, they weep and they weep again and again and again over Abner. Added to the fact of murder, David makes sure that everyone knew that this was a cowardly act on Joab's part, and a shameful death for Abner, since he did not die valiantly in battle, or as a prisoner of war, but by the deceit of a betrayer. Now after the funeral, David informs the people that he will continue his lamentation by fasting, which the people understood as a genuine act of sorrow. You see, David had to be genuine, and I believe he was genuine. He didn't want Abner to to be killed like that. Now he he doesn't have Abner's warship, he has Joab. David's sincerity pleases the people to the point where they're well satisfied. And when all the people came to cause David to eat meat while it was yet day, David swears, saying, 
So do God to me, and more also, if I taste bread or aught else till the sun be down. And all the people took notice of it, and it pleased them. As whatsoever the king did, please all the people. For all the people in all Israel understood that day that it was not of the king to slay Abner, the son of Ner. Now in verse 38, David opens up to his servants as to his own feelings about Abner, which tell us that Joab was correct by thinking that his position as David's war chief was threatened. Verse 38, And the king said unto his servants, Know ye not that there is a prince and a great man fallen this day in Israel? Would he not want that great man and that prince to be general in his army? Of course he would. So Joab was right, at least in thinking that he is going to be replaced. Now consider David's secret confession. In the final verse, verse 39 Notice what he says. And I am this day weak, though anointed king. Now, I don't believe David is telling anyone this. I believe at this point he's thinking this to himself, maybe saying it to himself out loud, confessing to himself, and I am this day, by not killing that man, I am this day weak, by not following the law of God again, even though I'm the king. I am the king. I should have executed that man immediately. And even though I am king, I am weak. Here's a man understanding his own self. Here's a man who looks in the mirror and says, I know my frailties. And now, coming face to face with some of those frailties, some of those faults, he confesses, even though I'm the king, which means nothing unless I can obey and be strong. Even though I am king, I am weak. No one should know that David saw himself as weak. And yet, in David's own mind, he considered himself as such because he did not do what was right at the time when it should have been done. So why? Why did David think he was weak? Well, of course, because... He was respecting persons. Even though he was anointed as the king, he was tender-hearted. In fact, the Hebrew word David uses to describe his constitution in this matter is tender-hearted. He was too soft. He said, even though I'm king, I'm just too soft. I failed to execute Joab on the spot. I favored the man since he was kin to me. I know that if Joab was an Amalekite, I would have wasted no time in executing that man as I had done previously. But because it was Joab, it was kin, David hesitates. Thinking that a curse upon him would suffice. And David knew this. In fact, David knew that this misstep in his judgment would come back to haunt him later on. And so he admits. Notice what he says. And these men... These men, not only Joab, but his whole kinfolk. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too hard. They're too proud. They're too obstinate for me. They're hard-headed. I can't deal with them, even though I'm king. I'm too soft with these men, these wicked men of Zeruiah. They're too obstinate for me. They're too proud. They're unruly. And I feel, even as king, that I have little power to contain them. 
And so because David believes he cannot contain the sons of Jeruiah, especially Joab, he calls upon the Lord to take his justice upon Joab and his posterity. You see, sometimes when we feel, as David, that we cannot take proper vengeance against the wicked, that they're too obstinate, they're too proud, they're too powerful, we give it to the Lord. We bring down the curses of God upon the wicked and we curse not only them, but their entire posterity, lest anyone else raises their ugly head to destroy the church of Jesus Christ. But note how David even refuses to call Joab by his name. Rather, he calls him the doer of evil. He identifies him. He's supplanting his name with what he really is, a doer of evil. In order to identify him accurately before the throne of God, he is saying, the doer of evil, the Lord shall reward the doer of evil according to his wickedness. He killed in deceit and treachery. Lord, bring down thy wrath upon him. Kill him, for he is a wicked man. This is serious language. And there are very, very serious applications to this narrative. As in our modern day, News travels fast in Israel, even without the internet. When the news of Abner's death reaches Ishbosheth, he becomes even more fearful for his own safety. We shall examine that next when we move into chapter 4 in our exposition of the second book of Samuel. And this we shall do, God helping us unto the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen.